Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. The time is 3.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. We'll be joined later in the program today by local farmer and food sovereignty activist Heather Rettberg for a discussion of a proposed right to food amendment to Maine's constitution. And we'll be opening the phone lines at that time for your questions and comments. But first, we hear from members of Veterans for Peace from this area who recently toured U.S. military bases under construction in Japan and South Korea. This segment was produced by WERU's Carolyn Co. Dud Hendrick, Russell Ray, and Bruce Gagnon were part of a December 2015 Veterans for Peace delegation to Okinawa, Japan, and Jeju Island, South Korea. They spoke at Emlyn Hall, the base school, in Blue Hill on February 4th. Dud Hendrick spoke first. Veterans for Peace was founded in Maine. You may know that. One of the founding members was Doug Rawlings, who was hoping to be here tonight. He is, was unable to make it down from Farmington, but uh, Tarak, as Rob indicated, is with us. He and Bruce were our co-directors on this trip. Uh, they, uh, they ensured that we were well-connected along the way, and they ensured that I think we maximized the experience. Uh, the, the last statement, the last purpose, if you can read it in our mission statement for, for Veterans for Peace, is that we work to abolish war as an instrument of foreign policy. And that really is the essence of why we went to, to uh, Jeju and to Okinawa. I want to tell you a little bit quickly about my own background, which will enable you hopefully to understand why I was so grateful to be included on this delegation and will serve to explain why there is a substantial international movement that may someday persuade U.S. policymakers to find a better way to participate in the community of nations. In 1964, I was sent to Thule, Greenland as a young Air Force officer. Decades later, I learned that the indigenous people of this place, the Inuit, had been displaced to make way for the construction of the Thule Air Base, shown here. The hardships that those people endured as a result of this displacement and the lack of compassion, the otherness inherent and their treatment is unsettling, to say the least. Learning of their experience led me to an awareness of our garrisoning of the planet by our military bases. I subsequently learned of the similar fate suffered by people of Diego Garcia and the Marshall Islands. And each of those stories contains elements that are so heartless as to be unimaginable. Each case bears the stamp of imperial behavior, offering testimony to an unacceptable arrogance that says, we are worth more, they are worth less. The Inuit were given three days to move. There were no homes to their new place to which they were directed, as promised by the United States. The Chagos people of Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean were transported 1,200 miles across the Indian Ocean to face lives of abject poverty, and they've not been permitted to return ever since to their idyllic island. Between 1946 and 1958, the United States detonated 67 atomic bombs uh, on several of the Marshall Islands. Their precious lands remain radi radiated, and the consequences of that radiation most horrifically continue to 
burden the people of this place. All manner of birth deformities, the worst being the, uh, the worst of the consequences. There's another dimension to the situation in the Marshall Islands that's relevant to the impact of our bases in tonight's talk. The U.S. maintains a base on one of the Marshall Islands, Kwajalein, that was not exposed to the radi radiation of the testing. There, the Ronald Reagan Ballistic Missile Defense Site is located. About 1,000 military and defense contractors reside there on this 750-acre island. Four miles to the north sits the island of Ebai, known as the ghetto or the slum of the Pacific. More than 15,000 people live on this 80-acre island, many of whom work on Kwajalein but cannot live there, as dictated by the United States. They suffer all of the misfortune you might expect in such a densely packed place. These are the consequences generally suffered by these countries that host our bases. My familiarity with the stories of the Inuit, the Chagos, and the Marshall Islanders introduced me to the consequences suffered by these people around the planet. And the consequences raise obvious questions. Are these bases really a good idea, and do they serve to make anybody safer? We would see and hear of the consequences in our conversations with the leaders and the activists both on Jeju and Okinawa. Here's our delegation of 13 people standing at the main gate of the naval base at Kangjong. Uh, it has been under construction since 2008. It's nearly completed now. It will bring some 7,000 military personnel to this fishing and agricultural village of 2,000, most of whom object. Visiting Kang Jong makes one mindful of Stonington, of my community on Deer Isle, and it makes me wonder just what the impact would be there. This slide provi provides us with an introduction to the geography of the place that we're speaking about. Jeju is the island just south of the South Korean Peninsula that we see here, and uh, Okinawa is the larger island in this chain of islands south of Japan mainland. This probably being this would be Okinawa here. It is some 400 miles south of of Okinawa itself. Jeju is about 40 miles south of the South Korean Peninsula, and it's about 700 square miles, a population of 600,000 people or so now. It's really critical in understanding why the objection might be so uh, of such great magnitude to these bases in these places. One must know a little bit about the history of both places. Following World War II, the U.S replaced the defeated Japanese as occupiers of Korea. In 1945, Sigmund Rhee, a Korean national who had been educated and had lived in the United States for nearly 40 years, was appointed by the U.S. to head the South Korean government. Rhee's paramilitary forces, under operational control of the U.S. military, began a ruthless cleansing campaign throughout South Korea, brutally repressing dissidents generally identified as communists. On Jeju, the independent islanders who had been savaged by the Japanese occupation were particularly resentful of Rhee's heavy-handed measures. When the U.S. announced its abandonment of a commitment to organize Korean-wide elections, tensions erupted, and on April 3, 1948, protesters were fired upon by Korean security personnel. What became known as the Jeju Massacre followed. As many as 80,000 of the islanders, of the total population of 300,000 at that time, died, and more than half of the 400 island villages were raised. All of this was done under the authority and collaboration of the United States. 
In 2005, 57 years later, then-President Roh Moon-Yun of South Korea finally publicly announced the massacre and apologized to islanders. Jeju was officially designated an island of world peace. So the sighting of the naval base on Jeju is painfully ironic and objectionable in light of the massacre, the years of suppression of that history, and the designation island of world peace. This sculpture created by our friend Gilchen Ko, whom we got to meet, who is one of the leading activists, major personality in the resistance, depicts a mother and child who were shot during the April 3rd massacre. We spent nearly a week on Jeju, much of the time at the gate, as you see us here, obstructing the construction of the base. Russell will tell you much more about that experience. Knowing something about Okinawa's history also is helpful to understand the level of resistance to the U.S. military bases there. Sitting it as it does, equidistant from Japan and the Chinese mainland, Okinawa managed to remain autonomous for the centuries until, for several centuries before uh, 1879, when Japan annexed the entire archipelago in which Okinawa was located. Its relative remoteness allowed a culture and language to develop distinct from that of the Ch Japanese mainland. These distinctions determined that Okinawa would suffer lasting discrimination at the hands of the national government. Okinawans were required to speak Japanese and were punished or shamed for speaking Okinawan in school. The consequences for being Okinawan turned catastrophic during World War II, when the Battle of Okinawa swept the island in the spring and summer of 1945. The siege, one of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific Theater, was described as a typhoon of steel. Okinawans were caught in the crossfire. The southern part of the island was essentially flattened, and over 120,000 civilians of a population of 460,000 were killed. Not all the deaths were at the hands of the Allies. The Japanese military ordered many Okinawans to kill family members and commit suicide rather than risk the shame of, of uh, capture. After the war in the early 1950s, the U.S. imposed an order on Okinawa by which it expropriated privately owned lands to enable the construction of military bases. The bases remain today a very real symbol of the colonization of the island and the absence of a truly independent and democratic Japanese government. Resentment persists, perhaps even grows, in part due to the inordinate price of war paid by the Okinawans. This, is, uh, this represents Okinawa's inordinate burden, this disproportionate burden. There are some 30 U.S. military bases on the island, and that represents, in terms of personnel or U.S. personnel, over 70% of the total in Japan. And Okinawa represents less than 1% of the total Japanese landmass. Approximately 20% of the island is covered by these U.S. bases. And you can see the other associated um, consequences of our occupation there. And this map gives us a graphic representation of where these military bases are and how they dominate the landscape. Many Okinawans would like to see all of the bases gone. Futenma, Marine Air Station, due to its location amidst Jinawan, a city of 100,000, has attracted the most emotion. There are 16 schools, several hospitals, and Okinawa International University is located within a so-called safe zone of the, uh, of the base. Since 1996, the U.S. and Japan have been in agreement that Futenma must go. The catch is that the U.S. requires a replacement facility be built. From early on, Cape Hinoko, which you see here, 
30 miles north of Futenma, has been targeted and generally conceded to be the only option by the U.S. and the Japanese national government. Trouble is, the site, and for that matter, any alternative on Okinawa is usually unpopular with the Okinawan people. When the U.S. announced in 2012 that two squadrons of the Osprey helicopter aircraft would be based on Futenma and then moved to Hinoko, 101,000 Okinawans turned out to protest and again to call for the closure of Futenma. In 2013, 4,000 protesters marched in Tokyo, the capital city, of course, of, of Japan, the mainland. Leaders of all 41 municipalities on Okinawa called on the central government to cancel the relocation of Futama anywhere on the island. So the truth of the matter really is, as uh, many of you would all know, you recognize these figures. We know that our military budget is umpteen times greater than the next country and is more than the next seven countries. And the number of aircraft carriers we have with, relative to that, that Russia and China are most uh, threatening adversaries is, is uh, illuminating as well. The United States has 10 aircraft carriers, while Russia and China each have one. The U.S. was deemed the country that poses the greatest threat in the world by, to the world by a Gallup poll in 2013. Two to three million Vietnamese were killed in the Vietnam War. Over two million victims of our Agent Orange dousing of Vietnam are today still institutionalized, unable to take care of themselves. We bombed Mok Bak Mai Hospital in Hanoi, not once, but twice, three times. We bombed the Kunduz Hospital in Afghanistan. We have attacked Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Afghanistan. Professor and author William Bloom documents that the United States has bombed 28 countries since the end of World War II. He lists 57 instances that the U.S. has overthrown or attempted to overthrow a foreign government since World War II. Plenty of other documentation of the U.S. criminal record sets us apart, can be found. Do we have a serious empathy deficit in this country? I think not, but one has to wonder. We've got to overcome the mainstream media, the blackout that enables the general public to meekly permit an unimpeded buildup of our massive military power. Our history is not so much unknown elsewhere in today's digital world, and the world awaits a change. Reducing our empire of the foreign bases would be a good place to start. Three Mainers shared their reflections about the 2015 Veterans for Peace delegation to Okinawa, Japan, and Jeju Island, South Korea. Among them was Russell Ray, who co-founded COAST, Citizens Opposing Active Sonar Threats. I'm going to speak a little bit about some of the environmental impacts that have occurred as a result of the Jeju base construction. And I'm also going to touch on one of the reasons that I believe the resistance to the base has been able to go on so strongly for as long as it has. It's been over eight years the resistance has been going on, which is quite amazing. And um, so, Kangjung Village and the coast of Kangjung and the waters off the coast are very, very beautiful, or they were very beautiful, as you can see in the photograph. And those waters were full of life, and they were home to these amazing soft coral forests. And those forests were made up of many different species of corals, some of which are found only on Jeju Island, and some of which are endangered. 
And that area is habitat for a number of other endangered species, including this little guy here, the boreal digging frog. And uh, this is a type of freshwater shrimp that's only found on Jeju Island. and the island's only resident pod of dolphins. So because of the incredible beauty of that area and its ecological importance, it was designated a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve. And the South Korean government also designated it as a uh, absolute pre preservation area. That's absolute preservation area. But then the government changed its mind and decided it wanted to put a Navy base there. And so what did they do? They just simply uh, nullified that absolute preservation area. And in doing that, they, did it, they didn't follow the required procedure. So it's just, one, it's just one example of many of how, when it comes to this base, the government has been violating or ignoring its own laws. Another good example of that is the writing of the environmental impact statement for the base. And that was done in a way where it just totally glossed over the negative impacts that would be occurring. Even, if you can believe it, even failing to mention some of the endangered species that would be being impacted. And so the people who have been resisting the base, they, they challenged that environmental impact statement in court. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that court found that the government's report was poorly written and lacking in substance. But it wasn't bad enough to stop the construction. So they gave the go-ahead for construction. On the shore of Kangjong Village, there used to be this rock that was affectionately called Gurumbi by the villagers. And Gurumbi was no ordinary rock. It was three quarters of a mile long, and it was one single continuous rock. And it was formed when lava flowed into the ocean and uh, creating all these beautiful formations. And it has, or it had these beautiful, um, very, very pure freshwater springs coming up through the rock and also these tidal pools. And the villagers loved Gurumbi, and they would gather seaweed and shellfish on the rock, and they would play on the rock and uh, hold gatherings on the rock and um, swim in the tidal pools. And for ages, it was a place where they prayed and held ceremonies. But when, con oh, and they didn't think of Gurumbi as being this dead hunk of stone. It was considered to be a living entity, and it was held very sacred. But when the construction was given the go-ahead, it was blown up with explosives, and then the whole thing was covered over in concrete. And in doing that, in that process, many of those endangered crabs and frogs and shrimp were killed. And those um, soft coral forests, they were dredged. And they were dredged to make way for these huge warships that are going to be using the base. And the dredging outright killed many of those corals. And what it didn't, including endangered species. 
And what it didn't kill outright, much of it was covered over in sediment from the dredging and from other construction activities. And so biologists are very concerned about how those corals will fare, but the, the sediment is basically smothering those corals. And the biologists are also very concerned about those many fish and other species that use those corals as habitat. Where do they go if those corals should die? And then there's the noise from the base construction. And that noise has been just continuous, ongoing noise from the explosives, from the heavy machinery, from the huge, huge construction vehicles that are rumbling back and forth all day long to that base, and the barges that are operating offshore. And <clears throat> as you can imagine, that noise is having an impact on, on the villagers. It's stressing them out. And it's also stressing out the marine life. I mentioned earlier that pod of dolphins. There's only an estimated 114 of these dolphins remaining in this population. They're, they're Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins. And there are other populations of this species in other areas of the world, but this particular population has been isolated for a very long time. They don't have contact with other members of their species, so they likely have their own unique dolphin culture and maybe their own dialect. Those dolphins used to be seen off of Kangjung all the time, but since construction began, they're no longer seen. And I just want to point out, when that base becomes operational, the Navy will be testing and maintaining its sonar right there at the base. And they'll also likely be engaging in, um, in sonar and explosive exercises more frequently off of Jeju Island, just because it's very convenient for the Navy now. And the Navy likes convenience for them but it will, will not be good for those dolphins, and it won't be good for the rest of the marine life. So the people there who have been resisting this base, they've had to witness all these years of this devastation, and they've been resisting as hard as they can nonviolently, and they've been resisting for a long time. But it's got to be very depressing. That base is now almost complete, and, um, and yet those people somehow managed to keep getting out there. It's quite amazing. Um, I don't know what keeps their spirits up totally, but I think I have one idea, and that might be that they've chosen to weave into their resistance um, their song and their dance and their music and their art. It's in their, uh, it's in their blockades, it's in their sit-ins, it's in their peace rallies, and it's in their peace marches. It's really everywhere. And um, <clears throat> if you go into Kangjung Village, you'll see, you'll see paintings and painted banners, and there's been various sculpture placed around the villages and down by the shore. This mural here, uh, the writing above that long Pinocchio nose is just listing some of the many lies told
told by the Navy and by the government to the people about this base. Puppets. Now this, this image and the next slide were from a performance that happened on the third anniversary of the beginning of the destruction of Gurumbi Rock. And it was kind of a ceremonial uh, performance. They, they started at a, a building in the t village and then they wandered all past the gate to the base and down to the, down to the base. And it's very beautiful. If you actually, you can see this on YouTube. You can see a YouTube video of this performance. Very beautiful. And so the art is everywhere. And the same is true with the song and the music and the dance. It's really very much in the resistance. When we were there, every day we would go to the gate blockade. And every day, Father Moon, this is Father Moon. He, he was a very, uh, he's one of the leaders of the resistance, and he's this amazing, charismatic guy who everybody just loves him, and he's a real inspiration for the, for the resistance. He would pick up a microphone, and he would sing this song that, um, it was in Korean, but we could hear the words Kung Jong and Gurambi. And he sang it very emotionally and very passionately, and I think he was singing his love for the place. And it was quite moving, very moving and beautiful. And every day at the gate, we would go through this kind of strange dance with the police because the people resisting the base would sit in these chairs all across the, the gate entrance and we would block the construction vehicles. And they would line up in this long, long line behind us and out on the street in front of us. And we would block them for maybe 15 or 20 minutes or something like that. And then the police would all move in and they'd come and they'd surround each one of us and lift us up on our chair and pick us up and put us down by the side of the gate. And then after we were all over, they would, uh, they would block us and the construction vehicles would roll through. And we'd repeat this a number of times and after several of these cycles or a number of these cycles, um, Towards the end, at one point, this music would come across the loudspeakers that were mounted across the street. And it would be a, it was a traditional Korean music, I believe, with lots of cymbals and a percussion and a woman singing. And everybody would rise up from their chairs and join hands and we'd form a human chain. And we'd do this dance around the gate, which was this very slow dance, and we'd just weave in around the chairs and around the police officers who were standing there stone-faced. And um, it was very beautiful, and all the while we were blocking the construction vehicles. And then that music would end, and this very lively Korean pop music would come on, and it was great. Everybody would broke into this dance, this very lively dance, and it was a choreographed dance. We didn't know the moves for it, but we all did our best to follow along, and it was really fun. Lots of clapping and clapping hands with our neighbors, and just people were smiling and laughing and shouting out and waving their banners and dancing with their banners. It was, it was really wonderful. And I think it's a way that the people were able to let off steam and lighten the heaviness of the situation. So the art 
and the music and the poetry and the dance was really just everywhere. It was very much a part of the resistance. And I think that maybe, <clears throat> along with the people's uh, very obvious passion and desire for peace and stopping wars and stopping environmental destruction and stopping the destruction of their beautiful lands and waters, I think it maybe helped to energize them and keep them going. The people were so amazing. Um, they're just beautiful, beautiful people, and they're out there every day. They were there today, and they're going to be there tomorrow, and they're already planning for the next phase when the base is completed. They, they are planning. They're not going to quit. They're just amazing. And on the delegation, I think we were all very, very much inspired by these people and uh, their, their courage and their, uh, just their determination not to give up. Amazing people. And I'm very grateful to have been part of the delegation. Thank you. Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space and a Veterans for Peace member also spoke in Blue Hill on February 4th about the Veterans for Peace delegation to Japan and South Korea. I live in Bath and frequently whenever any new uh, destroyers are christened, if we could use that word christened in Bath, we like to organize a protest against it and we invite people to come. Uh, about eight years ago, we were planning to hold a protest at the time of a christening, and we heard from a global network that I work for, one of our board members, a woman by the name of Sung Hee Che, a Korean woman, who had visited Jeju Island. She told us that the warships from Bath were going to be going to a new Navy base that was being built in Jeju Island. So this was the first time I ever heard of the place. And so that day at the christening protest, I mentioned that simultaneously in Jeju, on this same day, there was going to be a protest against this base that would be porting these U.S. warships. And it was then that I began to try to learn a lot more about Jeju Island and why would the U.S. be putting a base there. And it's all really connected to Obama's announced pivot of 60% of U.S. military forces into the Asia-Pacific region. And we got to, though, ask why. What's the reason for doing that? And so here's Jeju, just south of the Korean Peninsula. And, and it's important to know that 80% of Chinese resources, oil and other resources, are brought in on ships through this waterway right through this area. And we know that the United States is a collapsing military empire, that even though it has a thousand bases around the world, our economy at home is collapsing, and our influence around the world is collapsing as well. And so the United States is essentially like a gambler at Las Vegas, rolling the dice until someone stops us. And so that's the strategy today with China. Do everything possible to impede the development of China. Find a way to control and dominate both China and Russia. 
as we move into this new era, as China and Russia have created this organization called BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And they are creating development banks to rival the IMF and the World Bank, who have been exploiting countries when they give them loans, forcing austerity measures, privatizing their uh, resources, their country. And so BRICS is trying to rival this on the international level. And the U.S. and its capitalist friends around the world are absolutely angry and fiercely opposed to these developments. So the U.S. strategy, as always, is use the hammer in the toolbox, which is the military-industrial complex. So the Asia pivot, then, is the ultimate move in this direction. The reimposition of U.S. bases into the Philippines, the U.S. putting so-called missile defense systems in Taiwan, in Guam, which is out here, in Okinawa, Japan, Korea, and on these warships, these Aegis destroyers, also outfitted with so-called missile defense systems, all along the coastline around China. And the job of missile defense, as the U.S. Space Command has continuously reported, is that in a first-strike attack of Russia and China, the U.S. tries to take out their nuclear weapons. And then, obviously, they don't get every one of them. And so then Russia or China would fire a retaliatory strike. But the United States, by uh, deploying missile defense on ground-based launchers in these countries and on these Aegis destroyers, encircling both Russia and China, would have the ability, they say, to pick off the retaliatory strike, giving the U.S. a successful first-strike attack. And so this is what the U.S. Space Command is annually wargaming today, and the U.S. is moving uh, into full operational deployment to put this system in place. So as this pivot goes forward, that means that more barracks, more airfields, and more ports of call are needed for U.S. military forces moving into this region. In the case of Korea, the U.S. has what's called a Status of Forces Agreement, SOFA, S-O-F-A, where this agreement gives us, the U.S., the right to deploy uh, anything we want at any base in Korea. That same kind of arrangement is made with Philippines and other countries as well. Recently in Okinawa, the U.S. ambassador to Japan, a woman that I think everyone knows her name, Caroline Kennedy, she has repeatedly gone from uh, Japan to Okinawa and told the Okinawan people that they had better get used to the idea of the base expansions going on in their, on their island. You saw earlier the picture of the proposed marine runways going out over Ora Bay, a pristine bay loaded with coral reefs and a feeding grounds for the endangered dugong mammal, sea mammal, uh, similar to a manatee. And so over this pristine bay, then, these runways will be built by putting in about a million or so dump truck loads of landfill. Now just imagine, imagine the environmental catastrophe uh, 
that is behind all of that. And so our trip, which Tarek and I set to organize uh, through Veterans for Peace, was to try to get our organization and the wider peace movement to pay greater attention to this pivot and the implications, the environmental implications, and the human rights implications, and more importantly, the implications to world peace as a result of this. Because even people in the peace movement, or in Veterans for Peace, aren't necessarily aware of this whole broader issue. And so that's the reason why we organized this trip. And I have to say, Tarek was instrumental in getting some of the younger veterans. We didn't want just a bunch of old guys on this trip. And so we were able to get some Iraq and uh, two Iraq and uh, Afghanistan war veterans to come along, which really added a beautiful dimension to our delegation. We're, uh, today on the way here, uh, Tarek and I were talking about organizing another trip to Jeju Island uh, this coming summer. At the end of July, every year, they organize a walk all the way around the island. They have three, four, five hundred people come, uh, and they send two teams, one east, one west, going around the entire island, meeting up uh, together at the very end. It's a really amazing thing. I've been wanting to go and never have been able to get there, but this summer I'm determined to go and be a part of that. And so uh, working with Veterans for Peace and an organization called Solidarity Committee for Peace and Reunification in Korea uh, here in the United States, we're going to organize a uh, trip, another delegation, to go back and participate in that walk. And then from there, go to Seoul for about a week or so uh, to participate in the annual anniversary events to remember the uh, commemoration of the ending of the uh, Japanese occupation, the brutal occupation of Korea. And so there's also many, many events going on at that time, including major protests at various U.S. bases uh, on the Korean mainland. So if anybody is interested in coming along to this, uh, I think you would uh, have a great experience. Please let me know and we'll, uh, we'll send you more information about it. Let me just end by saying that I think it's tragic living here in Maine where these ships or warships are sent off from Bath, where they're christened. Crowds often gather by the thousands to come and witness these christenings, God's blessing, Jesus' blessing to send these things off. But people don't hardly ever think about where they go and what their mission really is. They think they're out there to defend us from attack. But in fact, these warships made in our state are offensive, part of the U.S. offensive military strategy. Forward deployed, provocative offensive strategy. And so I feel, I've always felt that we have a special responsibility in this state to illuminate the reality of the role, the military mission of these uh, uh, ships from Bath, and also to bring the stories back to our state about the people whose lives are impacted when these uh, warships go <clears throat> on their missions. So I've been very proud of the number of Mainers. I think there have been more people from Maine that have gone to Jeju Island. Carolyn has gone uh, as well. 
And, uh, but I think there are more people from Maine that have gone to Jeju than any other state. And to me, that's a, that's a, a great source of pride. And I would love to see many, many more go as well. Thank you all very much. And you are listening to Maine Currents on WERU. That segment was produced by Carolyn Coe. More information about Maine Veterans for Peace can be found at their website, which is www.vfpmaine.org. And Heather Rettberg is joining us now in the studio to talk about a proposed right to food amendment to Maine's Constitution. And we only have 20 minutes for this segment, so we're going to open the phone lines for at any point if you have any questions for her about this constitutional amendment. Give us a call at 469-0500. Again, 469-0500. Heather Rettberg farms with her husband, Phil, at Quills End Farm in Penobscot, nearby uh, next town over here from East Orland. She homeschools schools her children. She's a current master of the Halcyon Grange in North Blue Hill, working collaboratively rebuilding agricultural infrastructure and the cultural historical knowledge about food and farming. She serves on the board of Food for Maine's Future and is a leader of Local Food Rules, which promotes a revolution in thinking about who should control our local food systems. And all of this explains why the last time we talked about food sovereignty issues here on the program, which Heather didn't realize this, but uh, she was not able to join us that day because she was milking cows, and that got mentioned on the air, and we received several callers after that called in uh, uh, praising her work in the local food movement. So we're very happy to have you here today. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. So you're here to tell us about this proposed constitutional amendment. It's LD783, uh, state constitution amendment a resolution proposing an amendment to the Constitution of Maine to establish a right to food. So let's start with summarizing the bill and as it is currently written, as it currently stands. Sure. Yeah, the, the bill was actually um, amended in um, a February work session this year, and uh, the title is now A Right to Food Freedom and Food Self-Sufficiency. Um, so that, that changed um, a, a little bit about the um, sort of foundation that it's, it's um, based on. But essentially what the, the bill um, aims to do is to provide a constitutional protection for the right to obtain the food that we wish to eat, um, the ability to grow food um, the, and save and exchange seed, um, the ability to barter, um, hunt, forage, in any way produce food for ourselves, um, these uh, just sort of basic ways that we find to nourish and sustain ourselves. And this is seeking to um, to provide some constitutional protection around a right that we all assume that we possess. Okay. And the actual, on the website, if you go to the state legislature's website, they still have the old name there listed. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of the information that's there, this is a constantly changing, constantly evolving kind of process. Where is it exactly in the process? You mentioned there's been a name change and some language change since last year. It started, it was introduced originally spring 2015? That's right. It was introduced um, in, the, in the first regular legislative session last last year. Um, and since then, um, in response to some of the arguments that were raised against it and some of the just the misunderstandings about it, the language was amended. Um, and if it would be helpful, I could just read the amendment so people know if because I know yeah, it's a little, a little hard to find on the Maine.gov website. So it seeks to add an article to um, Maine's Declaration of Rights, and it would be Section 25, Right to Food Freedom and Food Self-Sufficiency. 
All individuals have a natural, inherent, and unalienable right to acquire, produce, process, prepare, preserve, and consume the food of their own choosing for their own nourishment and sustenance by hunting, gathering, foraging, farming, fishing, gardening, and saving and exchanging seeds, as long as no individual commits trespassing, theft, poaching, or other abuses of private property rights, public lands, or natural resources in the acquisition of food. Furthermore, all individuals have a right to barter, trade, and purchase food from the sources of their own choosing for their own bodily health and well-being. Every individual is fully responsible for the exercise of these rights, which may not be infringed. So why is this necessary? Well, it is a difficult thing to unpeel and to, and to unpack. Um, the core of it is to answer the question about who determines the most elemental things of life, who determines the decisions that govern our health. Um, and most of us go about life assuming that we do, that we have a right, of course, to obtain any food we wish. We have a right to feed ourselves and, and to take care of ourselves the way that, that we see fit. Um, but in 2010, there was a um, district court case in Iowa, I believe, where the FDA um, explicitly stated that we don't actually possess these rights. Um, they made some really um, audacious statements that there's, there's no absolute right to consume or feed children any particular kind of food. There's no deeply rooted historical tradition of unfettered access to foods of all kinds and that the assertion of a fundamental right to our own bodily and physical health is unavailing because consumers do not have a fundamental right to obtain any food they wish. So when there are um, uh, cases that end up in court, people find that they don't actually have any legal ground to stand on because they're asserting a right that um, many people think um, is implied in our federal constitution um, but the courts have said that no, it isn't. You don't have a right to obtain any food that you wish. So um, Maine now has this opportunity to be the first state in the nation to protect this, this right and to, to draw that legal space around something that we all take for granted. Is this in any way also a reaction to how the courts have ruled about the local food ordinances. You know, back a few years ago, we were hearing a lot about Farmer Brown down in Blue Hill, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of local towns in this area at least passed ordinances trying to protect the rights of people to be able to go to a farm stand and buy, a, you know, a gallon of milk if they wanted to. And then my understanding is the courts have not upheld that, that the state has said that they have uh, control over these things rather than home rule. So will this, did that in any way prompt this and will this take care of that issue? Well, um, yeah, when the state, uh, the, the court, the Supreme Court actually was very careful to avoid preemption of the local food ordinances and explicitly stated in their ruling that they were going to narrowly interpret the ordinances to mean that they were only trying to exempt themselves from local food regulations, which don't exist in most of our towns. So when um, I went to the Supreme Court and sat in that in that um, courtroom, and the justices were very concerned about the legislative intent of the laws um, and the representation of the state in that setting is um, the attorney general representing the, the regulatory agency rules, which become laws eventually. Um, so. What happened interestingly during the 
process of that lawsuit is that um, where, where the Supreme Court is looking for the legislative intent um, and their uh, position, they can only apply the, um, the laws that exist to the facts in the case. And the laws that existed changed. The legislature during that court case directed the Department of Agriculture um, to, they, they merged with the Department of Conservation and Forestry. And when they merged, there was an, a, a section added to, to the, the, found, the foundational direction to, to the new department of, um, that, that really reflects food sovereignty and um, saying that the department shall support policies that ensure local control. So really, the ordinance um, has all of these elements from supportive state laws um, that the department's supposed to be supporting local control of food. They're supposed to be supporting food self-sufficiency and the direct exchange of food between individuals. Um, so that may be a little bit separate from, from this constitutional amendment right now. Um, but it, both of these um, efforts have certainly sought to... Um, to rectify the systemic changes that that have become visible through these types of court cases, so what we find happening is that you know when people do start exchanging food in their communities, nobody sees that there's any um, legal problem with that until there somebody from the state comes down the driveway and says, you know, you can't do that, um, and uh, you know there's something happening like that right now in the state of Maine in, in Unity. There's a, a charcuterie run by an Amish couple um, in a very um, similar situation. Define that term. Charcuterie. A charcuterie. So they're they're making um, these really uh, by traditional methods sausages and cheeses and dry curing them, um, and so. What's happened is that the department in this in this situation is saying, well, we have um, we've just updated our our rules to reflect the language from the federal level, and now we have a different requirement for a small operation like this, and that's that's um, an update that hasn't gone through any kind of um, democratic process. It hasn't gone through the legislature, and so by establishing a right to food freedom and food self sufficiency. This gives us as food eaters a way to say, wait a minute, you know, this this constitutional authority that we've granted to the government to um, to regulate food is now going too far and it's taking away my ability to nourish myself in the way that I see fit. And this is the conflict that the constitutional amendment is seeking to rectify. And and the state justifies a lot of this by saying they're concerned about safety and they have an obligation to protect Mainers from unhealthy food. But by going after farm stands as opposed to some of the stuff that's in the grocery stores that's clearly not healthy food, mm -hmm. it seems um, it, that there's a little bit of an irony there. I don't want to get too far off track, though, from this constitutional amendment. We were talking about where it is in the process. It's very timely right now because it it's about to be possibly taken up by the legislature. Is that right? Or that's right. Um, so where it is in the process is that it came. Um, bef the, it was carried over from that first regular session. Um, there were you know hundreds of people that showed up the the day of the public hearing. Um, dozens of people testified um, on that day, and um, and then there were these concerns raised um, that somehow this amendment would allow the. Um, um, the government to take food from some people and give it to others somehow would allow stealing of food. Um, and so the bill was carried over to to 
really work out some of these issues and and the language amended that was taken up again now that the session that the legislature is back in session um, and it went to the committee for a work session and then it came out of committee with a favorable vote eight um, in favor um, to five against so the next step for a constitutional amendment is to go to the floor of the house and um, and be voted on, and that should happen in the in the next week or so. Um, the The bar is high for constitutional amendment right. as it should be. So this bill will need a two thirds majority vote in both chambers of the legislature, and we're really hoping that will happen because the great thing about that is that the legislature doesn't have to make the decision to amend the constitution. What we're asking them to do is to send it. To, to the, the people, voters, right. and once if it passes the two-thirds bar, then it comes to the voters um, in the fall, and it would be on our ballot so that we could vote on it. So a really big issue, a constitutional amendment to Maine's constitution for a right to food is going to be happening possibly here in the next couple of weeks. We have about 10 minutes left to the program, actually slightly less than that. We have about seven minutes left. We can take a couple of phone calls if people have questions. The number is 469-0500. This is Maine Currents. I'm Amy Brown. My guest today is Heather Rethberg, and she works with uh, Food for Maine's Future and Local Food Rules. And if this does get two-thirds support in both chambers of the state legislature, does the governor have any chance to intervene and veto it before it gets to the ballot in November? Actually, no. Um, what the Constitution prescribes as the governor's role is to declare um, the eventual outcome if it were to pass. But there is no um, govern, uh, gubernatorial veto no way he in the process. Get his hands on it. Okay. So who supports it and who opposes it? Well, when we went to the legislature last year, there were a lot of people that um, uh, who spoke in favor, like I said, a couple dozen at least, and um, those were um, mostly citizens from Maine. There were some farmers, of course, but also people that um, are just seeing this sort of encroachment on their ability to acquire the foods that they wish. Um, so regular citizens were there. Um, speaking in favor and and really saying you know come on let's just give this to us so that we can vote on it um and opposed to it were very few um but the director of um, the bureau of agriculture food and rural resources and the department of agriculture did testify against the bill arguing that it would interfere with commercial farming even though there wasn't really any um anything to back that claim up um, and then also someone from the Maine Farm Bureau testified against the bill. Um, and that, that was a, a testimony many of us sort of uh, didn't um, understand, but he was making an argument that it would be better to um, do something to help food banks in the state of Maine um, instead of um, this, this constitutional amendment. We have a caller, Heather, so I'm going to have you stop okay. there because you have just a couple minutes and want to get this question in. Uh, go ahead, caller. What's your first name? Where are you calling from, please? David uh, from Brooklyn. I'll, I'll try and be quick. I uh, thanks Heather for your your constant uh, and very careful work uh, in the state for food sovereignty. I, I just wanted to uh, make sure that we're all aware of the uh, the wonderful um, uh, interview that David Barstamian did on Monday uh, with uh, a local rights activist lawyer. Uh, 
who uh, has involved some very good strategies for resisting the eventuality of the uh, state uh, or the federal government trying to uh, uh, wave their biggest club in the face of our local uh, initiatives. Uh, it, was a, it was a really wonderful piece of information that he had. I'm sorry, I can't give you his name right now. Okay, well, we can direct people. You can go to Alternative Radio's website, and they have those programs up there. So thanks for that reminder, David. We have just about three minutes left to the program. So quick interview with a, with a really big topic, but I want to just uh, turn it over to you, Heather, in terms of what you're wanting people to know in these last couple of minutes and where you'd like to direct them for more information. Oh, sure. Well, I think the most important thing to know right now is that you can make a difference. And um, the most effective way to do that right now is to call your senators, call your representatives, um, and weigh in and let them know if this is an important um, topic to you. You know, Do you want the constitutional protection to protect the choices you make about your own health and um, your ability to save and exchange seed? Um, call them, let them know that you care about it. Um, and that you want them to vote in favor of it because we will need a two-thirds vote and that is a high bar especially in this in an election year when when every vote has the potential to cause rifts later down the road and in the election cycle um, you can follow us on facebook at food for maine's future we'll be posting most regularly there about the status of the bill um, very soon we'll be posting an action alert that has a lot of information in in it so people know what the history of this is, some of the things that we just talked about. Um, so our we're on Facebook at Food for Maine's Future. There's also a blog, foodformainsfuture.net. And if you want to find out more about the what you can do at a local level that David was referring to, the idea of local community self-governance, um, we have a website called localfoodrules.org. And there's a lot more information about um, uh, Thomas Lindsay was the, the name of the, the lawyer, I think, that he was referring to that was talking about rights-based ordinances. Oh, okay. So you heard that show. Well, one of our customers called to make sure we didn't miss it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. All right. Yeah. And Alternative Radio's uh, website is simple. It's just alternativeradio.org. So... All right. Well, this is coming up very quickly, too. So if you just joined us and you didn't hear that before, this is something that may be voted on as soon as as soon as next week. week. Next yeah, week. So, it's, so it really is the time to act is now. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. Well, we appreciate you. that. And uh, and let's see. Oh, yes. Alternativeradio.org. I mentioned that. We've got the Facebook. Um, we'll put the link to your Facebook page up along with today's program oh, when we you. archive that on Friday as well. Um, the other thing, just real quickly, if listeners want more information or you want to hear more testimony pro and con about this bill, you can go to mainlegislature.org or maine.gov either way and search by... LD 783, that will bring up a page that gives you the full text of it. And also, there's audio recordings of everyone who testified at the public hearing that you mm -hmm. can click on and listen to, so you can educate yourself that way as well. So thanks again, Heather Retberg, for joining us today. Matt Murphy for engineering today's program. Stay tuned. We've got Larry Stahlberg is in the house getting ready for Jazz Straight Ahead, which is coming up later on tonight after Democracy Now!, which is coming up next. I'm Amy Brown. This is Maine Currents. Join us here every Wednesday for independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU at 4 o'clock. WERU-FM, 
89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported, nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech democracy, and independent media. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. Here's the National Weather Service forecast for the greater Bangor, Midcoast, and Downeast regions. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain in the evening. Lows in the mid-40s. West winds.